Welcome back to the Kona Podcast. I'm your host, James Joyner. I'm here with Lacey Kemp to introduce you to Corey Wallace, who is a monster of an endurance athlete and who reached out to us from atop a mountaintop, uh, atop a mountaintop, on top of a mountain. <laughs> I don't know, man. He basically sent smoke signals from a mountaintop in Nepal where he has been stuck since the global pandemic lockdown. Well, I want to go out on a limb and say Corey is probably pretty stoked to be stuck in Nepal because it's like a second home to him. He is absolutely a beast on a bike. Corey is the three-time 24-hour solo world champion. He does tons of high-altitude training down in Nepal the last couple of winters. He's been doing that. And he's won the Yak Attack race. He has the world record on the Annapurna Circuit down there, a ride that takes most people weeks. He'll do in like 23 hours or something. There's just, he's just, it's beyond comprehension to me as an athlete what that guy is capable of. And he's very, very concerned with the environment and the scope of how cycling can help improve the environment and how it can help improve people and their mentality and He's a really interesting guy, comes from Jasper, Alberta, an interesting family story. He's just, he's definitely not your typical shreddy bro on a bike. Um, and I think he's got a lot of really interesting things to say. He does. He's also incredibly laid back. Uh, we had a lot of connectivity issues with this podcast. Uh, you might notice some crackling in the background. Uh, at one point, there's birds singing. There's somebody yelling and an animal makes a grunting sound. It's definitely... <laughs> It's a wild sonic ride. And I think with that, we'll dive right into it. Thank you, Lacey. Yeah. So where are you? You're on a mountaintop in Tibet right now? <laughs> no, I'm in the Solo Kumbu region of Nepal. It's kind of on the, it's next to Tibet. Yeah, up at 2,500 meters. And yeah, just hanging out here for the time being. You've been there since quarantine started, right? How did you wind up there and how did you get stuck there? Yeah, um, it's kind of interesting. I was supposed to head to Spain for the Andalusia bike race at the end of February. But the night before, the day before I was going to leave, I had a big crash and dis dislocated my shoulder. So I canceled that trip. And instead, the next week I went, took a flight to East Nepal. I went trekking for like two and a half weeks. And then... Yeah, I went up to Everest region, trekked around, and then came back to the Solokumba region and met um, eight Nepalis, and we did a high-altitude training camp with them. And that was supposed to go until March 23rd, but we stopped it one day early because the coronavirus was picking up around Nepal. And yeah, basically overnight, Nepal went from one, cases, one case to two cases of the coronavirus, and then they just called the the country, like, they shut it down. <laughs> So uh, yeah, we had a we had a choice of going back to Kathmandu or staying up here as long as who knows how long. So my girlfriend and I decided to stay up here. Um, it's a really isolated valley, it's like 280k from Kathmandu, 12 hour drive, right on the edge of the Everest region. This is where the Everest treks start. So yeah, it seemed like a safe place to be, and it's worked out until now. But uh, yeah, that was 40 days ago now, and we're still in lockdown. <laughs> so, oh man. Where are you staying? Are you staying with friends? Are you camping? What's your what's your spot? Oh, we're staying with a friend, a French guy. He's lived in Nepal for the last 17 years. Yeah, his name is Tangi, and he does mountain bike trips in Nepal. That's how he makes his living. And otherwise, he just rides his bike. And yeah, I met him last year, and I've yeah, I've gone a few rides with him, and he said, yeah, come stay with us for a bit. 
And my girlfriend and I planned on going up to June Basie, which is further up in the mountains. We had a nice guest house in line, but um, it's worked out good being here. So we just stuck around and yeah, it's been good. What's the scene like there with coronavirus? Are people freaking out about it? Are, are there people, are there cases near you? No, there's no cases in this district yet. I mean, Nepal has been pretty, uh, they haven't tested too many people, maybe, I don't you know, 10,000 people now. So yeah, they just have no way of dealing with it over here. <laughs> so luckily nothing's happened too crazy. I think they have 60 confirmed cases and no deaths. So that's good. Yeah, the first week was really weird here because no, no one knew what was going to happen. So yeah, like when I walk by like any groups of kids, they'd hold their hands over their mouths. And yeah, there's a couple of rumors like foreigners getting blamed for the virus and we weren't, know, weren't sure which way it was going to go, but luckily nothing's happened and it's been super calm. I mean, people are just, in Nepal, they deal with so many problems over here, like earthquakes and poverty and there's always something bad going on, it seems. So they just, uh, in Nepal, they adapt to whatever's going on. Like, they're just like chameleons, it seems. So yeah, they're, they're super chill. Up here and like, we're pretty isolated and so the country folk is just doing what they normally do, it seems. What does everyone there think of what's happening in the rest of the world? Yeah, I don't think there's really much response. Like up here in the mountains, people just really live day to day and they're pretty focused on their little lives and they hear what's going on in the rest of the world and they figure that maybe their immune systems are just tougher or for whatever reason, like it's not happening here. So yeah, they don't seem too worried about it, to be honest. It's, <laughs> it's a pretty relaxing place to be right now. Do you have a, any idea when you'll be able to leave? No, um, Canada had one rescue flight mid-April, but they were charging, I think, three and a half thousand dollars for it, and it was a crazy flight schedule. Like you went to Qatar, spent twelve hours there, went to Montreal, you had to stay in a night hotel there for a night, and then yeah, it's gonna be like four grand to get home. So I think one hundred forty of the eleven hundred Canadians took that flight. <laughs> <laughs> wow. The rest of us are just like, you know, we're not going to spend that money. Um, Right now, the flight ban is till May 15th, but I'm predicting it'll be June or July by the time flights leave here. The biggest problem is that Nepal has over a million migrant workers out of the country, which have to come home at some point. And the country's not set up to deal with them. They have no uh, no quarantine. Like, they, don't, they can't quarantine them. And Nepal is such a social country like social distancing won't work here <laughs> so they just they have a big problem on their hands um so right now they've just locked everyone out and that's the way it is there is a couple flights going to europe which i could possibly jump on but right now i'm just sitting still and seeing what's gonna happen <laughs> i mean that makes sense it seems like all the races for the rest of the year are probably off as well so what's what's the rest of your season look like or the rest of your year yeah, I mean, that's what I'm basing my decisions on right now. Like, if races are going to pop up, I'm I'm going to find a way to get out of here. <laughs> so, like, right now, July 6th is when races could potentially happen in Canada, but I feel like they're not going to happen this year, um, just the way it's going. So, yeah, it just depends. Canada's going to make the next announcement May 25th in regards to races. And if races are going to happen, I'll get home somehow. <laughs> And, uh, I mean, up here I'm at altitude and I've been getting out on the bike a bit and keeping the fitness pretty high. So I think if I get back to Canada, do some, I was looking at some big, like, uh, those bike packing races, the BC Epic 1000, they won't do mass starts, but they could do the time trials. So I could 
could do some of those bike packing events like solo, but depending on what the situation is in Canada. And that could keep the body going for a fall race season if it happened. But if that doesn't happen, then the plan is to stick around Nepal for a bit, do some adventures here, um, all depending on the situation. And yeah, just enjoy the season of not racing. I mean, the last 10 years I've raced, I think over 600 races in like 20, 25 countries. So I, I a break is almost nice in a way. You let the body recuperate. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about that. How did you, how does one come around to endurance racing? You know, it's, it's such a, a niche and, and gnarly thing. And you've been the world champion multiple times. What, what brought you to that? Yeah, it's interesting. I grew up doing XCO racing and I was okay at it. Not, not one of the top in Canada, that's for sure. And, uh, so yeah, I just knew I didn't really have a future in like being a, an Olympian or anything like that in XCO racing. But I, I always enjoyed long adventures. My parents were backcountry wardens in Jasper. So we'd go to the backcountry for weeks on end and spend like, it'd be, it'd be long days, like 16 hour days in the bush, just like setting up camp, horseback riding, whatnot. And uh, yeah, I did a bunch of hikes and I just noticed like my body was good for endurance. And yeah, I think when I was 22, I sent Kona an email. I'd always ridden Kona and um, Dick Cox always set me up with good deals and bikes. And I just asked if there was ever going to be a marathon position on the Kona factory team. And he's like, not right now, but we'll keep you in the loop. And then, yeah, the next year I had a, a good race down in Weiruta de Conquistador in Costa Rica. And then, yeah, Kona gave me a bike and some team clothing next year. And, uh, yeah, there's a 24-hour world championship in Canmore that year. And my buddy Dave McDowell convinced me into going into it. Yeah, it was so hard. I think I was like in 20th position around midnight. And then this huge storm moved in and it like just destroyed the field. I think 10 of the top 20 like had to pull out. There's a lot of Australians there that weren't used to the cold weather. And by morning, I was within striking distance of the podium. And on the last lap, I actually got in the fifth spot, which was pretty cool. And yeah, I just knew my body was set for that. I, I think one thing that played a big part in that was I was a tree planter for six years. And when you tree plant, it's, yeah, 10 hour days in the bush, just <laughs> head down and, yeah, putting trees in the ground. So I think that kind of built the mental toughness and the endurance bit as well. I, I've done a ton of bike packing and a ton of adventure riding, and I've done, you know, 12 and 14 hour days, but definitely not with a race mentality. What's going through your mind at like hour 12 and, and then an hour 20 when you're just, you're just so slogged and you're going for it or do you enter like a zen state yeah it's a zen state i've done a lot of like mind training over the years because that's what goes first in these long races so the first 12 hours i try and shut the brain off and not put out too much effort just go with the flow talk with other riders just try not to stress myself out and then once midnight hits then you kind of look around and see who's left and then that's when the racing kind of starts and then you can see the end in sight almost you know it's like just 12 hours to go so yeah, I, I usually try and get get in the lead around midnight or with the leaders. And then uh, with hour 20, it's usually the final push. So you you know what position you're in and it's just let the adrenaline go. And <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a real trip. <laughs> What's the longest race you've done? Yeah, 24-hour races. Yeah, I've never done anything longer. 
And now it seems like when you're not racing, you're off having adventures all over the world. What what keeps you traveling? What what spurs you into that? I've always been like a a traveler adventurer. If I was just a normal bike race, I think I would have stopped racing probably five or six years ago. But it's really the adventure that keeps me going, going to new countries, meeting new people, doing new types of events. It's pretty cool with like the gravel racing and the marathon racing, 24-hour racing. I do some road races. There's just a variety. Uh, they all tie together. And uh, yeah, it's just, that's what's kept me going. The first few years, I'd go down to Central America for training. Then I moved over to Australia, New Zealand. Then last four years being in, uh, being in Asia. So it's, yeah, it's just <laughs> kept me interested in going for it. What bike do you ride for most of these? Do you have like a setup that's your go-to? Yeah, it's interesting. In Canada, I go with the Kona Heihe. It's a 29-inch uh, dually, 120 mil in front, 100 in the back. Uh, it's really the perfect race machine for like BC bike race or single track six. Um, I find the racing North America is usually technical and rock. You need the full suspension. And then when I head overseas it, to like Europe or Australia, it's smoother racing. So then I'll run the Kona Hanzo. It's their hardtail. And then for gravel racing, the Kona Libre, which is just like, it's a perfect gravel racing, adventure racing bike out there in my mind. It's got like four bottle cages and ample room for gear. And it's at the same time, like I'm faster in that than it was in any of my road bikes. So it's, it's, it's one of the best bikes I've ever ridden. What bike do you have with you right now? Yeah, I have my Kona Heihei with me right now. I got it in July, just before 24-Hour Worlds in Brazil. And that's pretty much the only bike I've ridden since. <laughs> I think it has close to like 800, 900 hours on it. And I've, yeah, the same Shimano 1x12 drivetrain. It's, yeah, I mean, the, the bike's bomb-proof. I'm feeling the suspension a little bit more these days. It's been a while since I had a tune-up. But yeah, that bike's going strong. I, uh, I'm i actually going to miss it. But uh, Kona has a new redesigned Kona Heihei for this year. And it's actually waiting for me in Canada as soon as I get home. So I, I really can't wait to get on that machine. It's I had a taste of it last year for a week. And it just like, it demolishes the trails. It's got 120 mil of travel front and back. And yeah, it's just a machine. So I, I'm super stoked to get on that thing. And it would actually be the perfect bike for over in Nepal because the trails are pretty rugged over here. So a little bit slacker bike with more suspension would be nice. Um, so yeah, I'm so stoked to get on that. <laughs> I read in your Mess Kit magazine interview um, that you spent a lot of time raising money and working with the cycling community over in Asia. What spurs you to do that there as opposed to in Canada or Europe? I think here I just noticed I can make a, a real big difference. The Nepalis always struck me as like one of the tightest groups of cyclists I've ever met. They all look after each other like brother and sisters and they they love cycling and they like it's what they live to do, but they have no support. They have no money. They have like it's so hard for them to do it. And it just seemed like a spot where I could step in and help them out. It's kind of by fluke. I did the Annapurna circuit as a fundraiser one year. And it was more of just to see if it could be ridden in 24 hours. And we thought we'd do a fundraiser at the same time. And the amount of money raised kind of blew us away. I think we've raised $15,000 in the last three years. And here, $15,000 is enough to run a training center in Kathmandu, um, host a couple 10-day training camps in the mountains, and still have money left over. So it's it's just money goes so far over here, and it makes such a difference for these guys. 
So yeah, that's kind of what I've done. And I mean, the, the next step is to come back to Canada and do something similar. This is just kind of where it, <laughs> it took off first. <laughs> I saw on your website that it's funny, you have like a things you like and things you don't like, and you really like long sleeps and you're really against bad sleeps, which I guess we all are, but it, it seemed like a, a particular thing to call out. Do you have a, a hang up about sleeping? I mean, I'm fine going to sleep for like <laughs> days on end, like I'm pretty good about it, but when it comes like weeks to months, I get kind of uh, <clears throat> tired and whatnot. And I think just the problem is I'm a real light sleeper, so I'm disturbed quite easily. And in countries like Nepal, it's really hard to find a quiet setting. There's always dogs or chickens or there's always something to disturb you. And yeah, three or four nights at a time is okay. But after that, you get pretty, pretty begged down. I'm not good at really taking rest days. So I often ride through the, through being tired. And that's probably what's made me such a good 24 hour racer. But at the same time, it's also like hurt me a few seasons where I just kept digging deeper and burnt myself out. So yeah, no, I'm I'm a big uh, believer in long sleeps to keep the immune system and body running running well. What kind of training diet do you have? Yeah, well, I actually studied nutrition for three years uh, via a, a program out of Vancouver. So I've learned quite a bit about nutrition and just figured out what my body runs on best. I did that via going to a naturopath and to test you for like allergies and what the body accepts. So I try and run like a real natural diet, a bit of meat. I found I tried to go vegetarian once, but it just I found my body couldn't recover in time, didn't function as well. So I eat some meat, but I try and keep it like lean chicken and fish, and some beef as well. But I try and make sure it's like free range and like raised properly. Lots of veggies. I've been gluten free since I was like eighteen. So yeah, lots of buckwheat flour, millet flour, stuff like that. I try and limit the sugars unless I'm racing or biking. Keep the fats pretty high like the good fats avocado almonds hemp seeds i do lots of supplements i'm always traveling so i always have bags of <laughs> ziploc bags full of powders usually like whey protein is a key one l-glutamine i have like a spirulina mix so yeah i find those are key when i'm traveling for months on end the like the diet here in nepal is really healthy but it's not uh it's lacking good protein it's lacking iron lacking some B vitamins. So I just finding to supplement a bit and then I can keep going. What's the most insane thing that that's happened to you on the road, be it in a race or just traveling? Oh man, there's so many, but I think <laughs> one of the ones that caught me off guard was going through, where was it? Sumatra. My teammate, Chris Ned and I just finished racing in Malaysia and we were set to go home. It was the end of the season, October. And yeah, my friend Jack Funk is like, you know what, you shouldn't go home yet. You should go on a little bike tour before you go home. Like, go check out Sumatra. I was like, what's he talking about? Like, whatever. So I like Google it. Big, it's called the Wild West Indonesia, biggest island. And uh, yeah, so I changed my ticket for two weeks later and took off to Sumatra. And I just remember landing there and it was just like, it was chaos. Totally wild. All the guys were just like yelling stuff at me. All the girls were staring and I got so out of my element. And Back then, I didn't have a smartphone either, so I had no maps or nothing. And yeah, I basically spent 10 days kind of <laughs> on the edge of my seat biking around the country, all the, that part of Indonesia. And I remember one night, I was trying to get to Bukit Luang, was like orangutans, big tourist city or town. And I was getting late, it was getting dark, and I 
wasn't going to make it. So I took this shortcut through the jungle. And the Sumatrans told me not to take it. But I was like, whatever. Like, I'm going that, I'm going that way. <laughs> and I got happy through the jungle, came around the corner. And there was this lone Sumatran standing there with a big rifle in his hand. And like, he's like right in the middle of the road too. I was like, oh shit. So I like stopped and kind of like waved at him like, hello. And he didn't say a thing. Just like stone cold look at me. I was like, shit, like what am I going to do? So I was like, okay, like I got to keep going. So I went into the ditch and kind of walked by him. And he just stared at me the whole time. <laughs> and uh, oh, man. yeah, eventually I got by him and around the next corner and just started sprinting. I was so scared. But uh, yeah, so that whole trip was pretty wild. Do you find that when you're traveling by bike, people are generally friendly and welcoming? Yeah. Um, I've biked through Central America a couple times, like through El Salvador, Honduras, like kind of sketchy countries in a way. And on the bike, I've never had a problem. I mean, that Sumatran guy was the closest thing I had to have, <laughs> the closest situation I had. But I find I have problems when I'm off the bike. When I'm just a normal civilian walking through Guatemala City at night or something, then I run into trouble. But on the bike, people have always, like, almost respected me, you know, just like, you know what, you're, you're sweating your butt off, you're working hard, like, welcome to our country. So, yeah, the bike's been a, a savior for me many times, I believe. You say when you're off the bike, you get into trouble. What kind of trouble? In Central America, I had some problems. Asia seems super chill for some reason. I think it's there. I don't know. Asia's always been good to me. Central America had a few close calls in Guatemala. I used to train out at Tenango in the West. And it's a real touristy city, like it's pretty cool. But at night, there's troubles with the locals um, coming after corner sometimes. And they had a couple of guys like throw beer balls at me one night trying to start a fight. And another night, I had two big guys like chase me, but luckily I was faster than them. There, it's you got to watch yourself at night. And the other spot was Belize City. I was biking through there in the evening and I got a flat tire and stopped to fix it. And a cop came up to me and was just like, what are you doing here? Like, you can't stop here. <laughs> like, you're not safe. So uh, <laughs> I remember pumping my tire up. I got a tube in there and I kept biking through Belize City. I was trying to get to the ferry to go to Kaikaka, the island. And my tube started having a slow leak. And I've never biked so fast in my life. It's just like, I got to get to this boat before my bike goes flat again. Because like, <laughs> I'm not safe here. How long can you do endurance races for? And what do you want to do? After you can't, I mean, I guess ostensibly you could go for decades, but do you have something that you want to do besides travel and, and ride? Yeah. I mean, I think the endurance should keep getting better until I'm 40 anyways. <laughs> it seems to be how things go, but yeah, I definitely like to give back to the cycling community. It's given so much to me over my life, but yeah, I want to help get more kids into cycling, really push that. I mean, I've been around the world and I see like, one of our biggest problems right now is pollution and like global warming. And I, I want to be an activist for that. Just like help push cycling to fix our world problems because I'm a huge believer in that. And as a career, I'd like to coach a few people and probably do some guided trips. I've been quite a few, few cool places I want to share with the other people. So yeah, do that. Maybe do some training camps. And the fallback is always forestry work. I spent 10 years off and on tree planting and tree falling and working in the forest in Canada. Uh, I really enjoy that lifestyle, just being out in nature. And yeah, a lot of it's production based as well. So you get paid by how much you do. So that's kind of a fallback. But I've always been wanting to live a simple life. So I don't 
I'm not going to need the big cars or expensive watches. Like I'm more about lifestyle. So yeah, no, I'll find a way to keep just valuing experiences and having a the freedom to choose to live the life I want to do so I can help people out and not be tied down to a nine to five job or whatever. My parents live up in Jasper and McBride, so I could settle in that region or maybe settle in Nepal for a bit. You know, it's <laughs> a lot of opportunities, but I can't see myself being in one spot for too long. <laughs> I can see that about you for sure. <laughs> You've traveled all over the world and you mentioned an interest in, in climate and the environment. I work closely with a lot of conservation groups in the United States. And one question I really like to ask activists is, do you think that we can beat climate change? Like, do you think humans can change enough and can dial it back enough to beat the dire predictions that are coming? Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I've watched the way the world has reacted to the COVID-19 virus. And if we reacted the same way to global warming, we'd be able to, I think, come to come up with a solution. I mean, we've got to stop burning fossil fuels and we've got to plant more trees. I mean, those are the two biggest things I can think of. I know myself, like, I have a huge CO2 emission from all the traveling I do, and that actually is pretty hard in my head right now. <laughs> so I'm trying to w- find a way to limit, maybe limit a few more flights each year. And I want to get back into tree planting to help balance my CO2 footprint. But yeah, no, I think we can find solutions. There's a lot of smart people on this planet. And we just have to act the same way we have to this COVID-19 and we can do it. COVID presented an immediate threat. Do you think that people will wake up to the, the immediacy of climate and make a change like this? I think, we'll, I think we'll have to. And I mean, if we don't, the world's going to balance itself out by itself. And <laughs> us humans are going to be ones that are going to suffer. So whether we do it or the earth is going to do it, it, it I think it will be fixed. <laughs> What blows my mind is like, like India's locked down their country for the COVID-19 and they keep saying like, we're going to spare every life possible. Like we're going to lock this country down so we don't lose anyone. But when the country's open, the pollution's so bad there, they lose, they say between 1.2 and 1.5 million people a year due to pollution. And no one seems to care about that. So that just like, it hurts my head. <laughs> like, yeah, how come you care so much about this virus and not at all about pollution? So hopefully they'll realize it at some point. I, I've been coming to Nepal for the last five, six years. And each year Kathmandu gets more polluted. And now you can't even live there. Like it's, the pollution's off the radar. It's like smoking a couple of cigarette packs a day. And it's just like, where have we lost <laughs> the sight of what we're trying to do? Like we're not developing if we don't have clean water and clean air to drink. Like we got to stop and reset and <laughs> do this right. You know, like, Clean air, clean water, clean food are like necessities. And then let's figure everything else out. But yeah, especially in these developing countries, it's really hard to get that across. And yeah, I mean, people have to live, so it's it's going to be hard to find a balance. When you leave to go on the road, what are the essential things that you have to bring with you? I imagine you roll pretty light. I do and I don't. I like The first thing is bike parts. What will I need to keep my bike going? And luckily, the bike's just super durable these days. So yeah, there's like spare derailleur, spare chain, brake pads, spare tire. But otherwise, the bike's pretty bomb-proof. So the next up is my nutrition. So it's going to be the vitamins, just like vitamin B, vitamin C, maybe iron supplements if I'm going to high altitude because then you burn more red blood cells. And then all the supplements, the whey protein, L-glutamine, spirulina. And then after that, I got my seven mesh clothing. They make some awesome cycling clothes, so I just 
that's half my clothing. That's pretty much it. Everything else you can buy when you're, you're overseas. So I've definitely cut down my packing lately. Usually when I leave, I have like half of it is disposable stuff, as in food and bike gear I'm going to go through. So by the time I'm going home, I all I have is a couple sets of clothes. <laughs> is there any place that you haven't been or, or what's your bucket list trip? Where, where haven't you been that you really want to go or what's a trip that you really want to do? Uh, that's a good question. I mean, recently it's been Nepal. I've just The more I explore here, the more there's to find. And right now I think I've found the best spot in Asia for biking, which is the Solokumbu region. So yeah, I think I'll just plan to keep coming back here. <laughs> it's got everything I... I want friendly people, lots of biking, high mountains, clean air, good food. Bhutan's a place I visited once for 12 days. I'd love to go back there. And uh, one bike trip I have in mind is biking from Nepal through India, Bhutan, Myanmar, and ending up in Thailand. That trip just kind of caught my, caught my attention. The border crossings are a little bit tricky, but I think Myanmar is opening up now, so it should be doable. And the other big bike trip that's been on my mind is the tour of the Divide Race from the Canadian Rockies down to New Mexico. That's a annual bikepacking race in June. But I just think the trip itself would be awesome biking down the Divide. So yeah, I mean those are kind of the spots. Otherwise, I mean I'm not too interested in Africa or the Middle East. Russia could be cool. Otherwise, it's yeah been pretty pretty much covered. <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up just because I'm afraid of losing you. I want to say thank you so much for doing this and for putting up with getting the connection and everything. And is there anything that you want to leave? Any last words you want to, I guess not last words. It sounds scary and final, but anything that you want to leave this on for the audience? Yeah, no, I just uh, <laughs> yeah, wish everyone good health and just staying mentally health, healthy as well during this, these tough times. And uh, yeah, it's just also, just want to say how welcome this world is. Like we're lucky to live on such earth where everyone's kind of fighting this COVID-19 together. Hopefully we can keep on doing that. But yeah, it's just been cool, like being in Nepal, uh, in the Stolokumbu region. Like Sir Edmund Hillary used to live here off and on after he climbed Everest. And he set up like the Himalayan Trust Foundation just to help build like schools and help educate the people and uh, supply health supplies. And it seems like the people really appreciate that and they still remember it. So like when they see me, a white person, biking through the countryside, they think back to like Hillary, I'm sure. Like that's why they're so kind to us. And just, yeah, if we can all be kind to each other <laughs> and uh, yeah, just hopefully we can fight COVID-19 off and then turn on to global warming next and keep our planet in one piece. But yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no, thank you. Talking shit about a pretty sunset Blanket and opinions that I'll probably regret soon Changed my mind so much I can't even trust it My mind changed me so much I can't even trust myself 